Psychomedy is brought to you by ThreadUp, Manchester-based therapy that supports creativity. I'm Rafaela Nunes, the founder of ThreadUp and the counsellor supporting the creative community. Comedians and creatives in general can experience anxiety, depression, low moods, and this in turn can affect their creativity. One-to-one counselling can facilitate a safe space for creatives to explore any difficulties, to gain self-awareness, to develop strategies that work, and ultimately to create choices that are aligned with the natural creative flow. If you're in need of support, then please get in touch. Visit threadup.co.uk to book your counselling sessions at reduced rates when you quote Psychomedy. To another episode of Psych Comedy. I'm Nathan Cassidy, stand-up comedian and Bachelor of Science, first class honours in psychology from Bristol University, a degree I've almost entirely forgotten. But it adds a tiny bit of credibility to me discussing the psychology of stand-up comedy with today's very special guest, the very funny Mark Cram. Mark, how are you? Not too bad. I didn't realise you had a BA though in uh, in psychology. I do. Now I feel like I'm gonna be overanalyzed. <laughs> As usual, inside comedy, we're not looking at each other in the eye for the duration of the interview. Mark is semi-lying down, very relaxed, with his lovely socks out on my sofa. So, I've seen you many times. I would describe your set as kind of very confident, like bulletproof set, the kind of set that promoters really like. You're a really um, brilliant MC, and uh, this is how we're buttering you up, you know. And you can handle very rowdy crowds. But for me, there's a nice vulnerability to you as well that the audience can tap into. Is that how you would describe yourself or would you describe yourself very different? It's interesting because I I used to not like talking to the crowd at all. Mm. And now I spend quite a lot of my act doing it. Even my material is directed, you know, call, like question, answer uh, to lead me into what I'm talking about. Mm. Um, But I think I try and be vulnerable. Everything I say, I like to think comes from a place of truth. Obviously, it's all, you know, made up. I did a gig... um, in front of my brother uh, a few weeks ago. Ah, now this is your brother who's in the <laughs> He was military? in the Marines, yes. Was in the Marines. He's, uh, he was in the military Marines for 14 years, but he's not anymore. Okay. Uh, in in the, in the uh, stand-up, he's always still in the Marines, because it's funnier that no, he's still there. But like, I was telling stories about him on stage, and people were turning around and asking him if they're true. Mm. And about, it's about a 50-50 ratio of whether it's true or not, I think. Mm. But so yeah, but I do, I would say I try and be vulnerable with it. But again, I like... I do pride myself on being able to handle quite rowdy crowds. Yeah, as no, you said. So, but it's not what you want to be doing. But it's a skill that's worth having. Oh no, absolutely, absolutely. So on this particular night, there were it was a, I think a full house, and there were people, uh, generally a really nice crowd. But then some people came in at the back that were being a bit uh, shouty. How did that make you feel as you were watching the gig? Did you think, are there going to be a bit of trouble or does that alter your mood at all in terms of how you're feeling watching the gig? So when I watched them during the first couple of acts, I was slightly concerned because they were shouting out a lot then at unhelpful times. 
Yeah. But I think as the gig went on, they kind of quietened down a little bit, and they were still shouting, and I think they were still on the right side of Rowdy. Mm. So they're not going to disrupt the gig, but they will. you could bounce off them and get enough off them to keep going. So I wasn't concerned going into the gig at all. Yeah. I was yeah. quite... I was, I've, you know, you've seen a lot worse. That's not, that's not a Rowdy room. Yeah. I find myself when I'm watching... When I'm there for the whole gig, I, I, I don't often like to do that because I go through a lot of different emotions when I'm watching people in terms of, okay, I'm ready now to go on. Oh, now I'm not ready. This actor's done incredibly. This actor's done incredibly badly. And my mood just varies. And of course, the only thing that matters with you being there is the moment you walk on the stage. Does your mood go up and down? Your, the way your mind's thinking is does it go in different directions during a gig maybe I, that maybe that gig in particular i don't know if you I, can remember a gig that i would worry about if i'm going on last especially is if um if every other actor absolutely killed it because mm. you have that you know as a comedian you know, if everyone else is killing it you're probably going to kill it as well because it's a nice audience and it's going mm. great but you have that <laughs> nagging doubt in the back of your mind if i'm the only act that dies on this show there's gonna be there's gonna be nowhere to hide and no one to blame but myself. <laughs> if every other actor is not doing that well, you think yeah it's gonna to be tough, but ultimately it's not gonna reflect badly on me. Yeah. Um, and again, it depends who's on the bill because there are certain acts I you know don't like to see die because they're friends of mine, and there are acts I do like to see die because they're not friends of mine. <laughs> and I'm a callous, horrible person. But that's interesting because we were talking again before the recording about the difference between stand-ups and maybe other creative art forms. So we were talking about improvisers and I've been mixing with poets as well. That there is, I, I do honestly believe that in those environments, people do want others, their colleagues, of course, their friends is a different example that you always want your friends to do well, but uh, or often <laughs> your colleagues to do well in those other creative art forms. But in stand-up, there are occasions where, as you say, if somebody does badly and you can possibly in, not enjoy that? I mean, how's... I think it depends. Things, I, watching one of my friends die when I know they're a good act is one of my favourite things in the world. Like my, <laughs> my good friend of mine, John Williams, I used to do a show called John vs. Mark with. I would enjoy watching him die at a gig more than anyone else in the world. Just I know he's a good act, and I know that he... I know I can just make fun of him for it afterwards. Right. But that's the sort of friendship we have. Okay. Um, like if it's someone I know who doesn't enjoy di- dying, I'm not going to enjoy that. Uh, I've kind of forget forgotten what your question was because I went off on one about John. But um. no, it's fine. My question may have been a little bit confusing. It's just in terms of the way you feel. I guess fundamentally diving into a fundamental point about stand-ups in terms of how you feel when other acts are doing well and better than you. And I think that's where a lot of problems come in stand-ups that it does because there's a lot of money potentially in stand-up comedy that people become jealous and people become bitter and people i mean there's definitely a lot of that Mm. i mean i personally don't because because i don't regard stand-up as my main source of income and i don't really aim to make it my main source of income at any time in my life right um i've got got other projects i enjoy doing Mm. um i i don't think i get that competitive thing with other people i get annoyed at myself and competitive with myself and things i'd like to be doing Mm. um but to highlight your point i think it was um i watched a young uh new act called josh balf a few weeks ago i don't know if you've seen josh Mm, possibly he's very good he did the he was doing the open spot on the friday night at the backyard And he absolutely annihilated it. And I, mm. I was saying to, I think it was, I think it was Steve Allen at the back. 
Mm. Um, <laughs> Whisper to Steve, he's only been going for a year. <laughs> Mm. And uh, and, Steve, and then as he was putting the mic back in the mic stand at the end, he fucked up putting the mic in the mic stand, <laughs> and we were just like, "Good," because <laughs> you at least at least you fucked up something, because yeah. he absolutely annihilated the gig <laughs> to a level that someone who's been going for one year shouldn't be allowed to do. It's going to take him at least ten years to learn that mic back in the stand thing. That's the key. That's the key. That's so, the key. That's the only thing I'm interested. You in can't in start gig. and stop the gig unless you get that done. <laughs> um. So before that gig, um, uh, and you were there for a couple of hours, so you were drinking from, <laughs> from, from the start of the gig. So you'd had maybe a bit to drink. Is that something you do before a, before a gig usually? I, 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 I don't mind performing drunk. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm always quite... Would you say you were drunk that night? I wasn't drunk, no. Okay. I did drunk, not wasted, just Monday, just gone. Then I was drunk. Okay. I uh, <laughs> seen the gig. Put it this way, I introduced the same act twice, and, and I was in, the headliner was Matt Smith, who is my flatmate, and I introduced Peter Baisley. <laughs> that, that's how drunk I was at that gig. But no, that your your gig, I wasn't. I wouldn't say I was drunk. I was about four beers in, so okay, generally fine. For me, that would be drunk. For me, that would be on the floor. But uh... um, so that gives me merry, and because I, I think if you're a little bit tipsy, I think it helps you with crowd work as well. I think you can it kind of loosens the filter a little bit. Okay, and is that something you've always done since you? How long have you been gigging? Uh, oh Christ, what, eight, no, eight, nine years, something yeah. like that. Um, were you previously uh, in Manchester or? Oh, I grew up in, in Milton Keynes. Okay, yeah. So you were previously. So I started gigging with the likes of Chris Purchase and yeah, other people whose names I've forgotten. So is that something you've always done? Why Why you've been doing stand up comedy? Drinking is that three four pints level kind of normal thing for you? Well, yeah, because I don't drive, so I've never had to be the driver for a gig anywhere. So I just um, mm. I'm always able to drink, but I, I don't always. Now I'm trying. To, I'm trying to cut out the amount of drink, especially on weeknight gigs. Yeah, but that's more of a personal thing, less than a stand-up thing. It's just I should I shouldn't be drinking as much as I am. Yeah, but it, is it a rarity for you not to drink like at a weekend gig, at a big gig? I'd say it's massively rare for me not, unless I'm I'm traveling a long way and someone's drove because I think it's it's quite disrespectful to get drunk and when someone's driving you to a gig. Yeah, because uh, or fall asleep when someone's driving you to a gig as well. So are there sets you do in the week now with absolutely no drink, or you always have a little bit of? I can do that. Now I think if like if I'm if I'm really gonna, if I'm opening I'm I'm only going to be like, like maximum one beer. So what's the point? I might as well just not drink at all. So okay, I don't. Yeah, but in those occasions where you're headlining those gigs, then four gigs is four pints. If I'm there is, all night, I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna drink. Okay, so that was your <laughs> that was your level on Friday when when I watched you. Um, so we get to the opening of your set and you talk about being bisexual. And then you mention your brother, as we talked about, uh, is or was in the military, was a Marine. Now, on this particular night, we've mentioned these shouty people at the back. And you do get a heckle, a one-word heckle. And if you wouldn't mind, we're going to play it back for you now, if that's okay. It's like being on Fallon queuing up a clip. Yeah, cool. <laughs> uh, number two is that my brother is a Royal Marines commando. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was really a great time for a homophobic comment when the bisexual comments just come on about his brother who could kill you with his thumb. <laughs> so that gets a laugh, and um, but it's. I mean, what do you what, what do you feel listening back to that? What's your first reaction? You know what? I, I think this is what I didn't realise at the time because I was having a really shocking week personally. Okay. Uh, I would he, you would you mind going into that in terms of how how what? you were feeling and. Well, I, I was having romantic troubles, and I'm bipolar anyway, so it's fucking up and down week. 
Right. Um, and you know, when you're on antidepressants and you drink, you're effectively as Jim Jeffrey said, you're not on antidepressants. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I was just having a shocking week. I think what that guy said is not okay. Like you shouldn't use gay as a derogatory term, fucking anyway. Yeah. But um, he was playing off the old trope that the Navy and the Marines are gay was that whole thing. Which So he wasn't having a go at gay with people. He was indirectly, but... And he um, knew that the moment he said it? Because I got confused. I thought he was <coughs> he was just doing a joke in terms of if you said you're bisexual, he then waited for to say your brother's a Marine. I think that's what I thought at the time. Mm. And I think, in hindsight, I don't think that was the case. But because but, I, was, I was in a very negative headspace, I just went at it negatively. Mm. And, uh, you know, there were other points in the gig where I, I sort of referenced back to him probably a few too many times for my for my own good and for his. And he eventually walked out. But. Mm. Is that something you get a lot, that kind of homophobia from audiences? I, I can't imagine you do, but maybe you do. No. I mean, especially because like most, since I've moved to London, most of my gigs are in London. And, you know, mm. and it sounds cliche to say you don't get a lot here. Mm. Um, I did a gig in Dudley when I was first starting. And this is not having a go at Dudley or the, <laughs> or the Black Country. Or Which anything is where like I'm that. from, almost. Uh, but this is, just, this is just where the story happened. Mm. I was doing a gig in a pub for an awful promoter. So I don't think you'd actually ever seen my act before. And I just went on and did it. And then a guy in the front <laughs> row, when I told him I was uh, bi, uh, got his ball sack out <laughs> and said, why don't you suck this then? <laughs> and you suddenly go, hey, you got, how do you deal with that as a heckle? Like, <laughs> you're like, hey, I've got two choices. I either suck his ball sack or I don't. <laughs> and, you know, me, I'm, I'm a crowd pleaser, so I suck the guy's ball sack. <laughs> I just... Um, suck my ball sack? What? In the end, I, I think I... End... Is that an expression? That I've never heard that it was before. Just a horrible, suck my ball sack. It was a horrible bunch of people. And I just did... <laughs> Not the dick. In, in the end, I started just listing things um, that, <laughs> that I thought they would like and that they wouldn't like. And one of the things <laughs> I listed was Bernard Manning. And some of them cheer, but one bloke shouted out. This is my favourite thing anyone's ever shouted out at a gig. He just shouted out, I feel like chicken tonight. To Bernard Because <laughs> he thought I meant Bernard Matthews. <laughs> which is also... It's so many layers to this, because Bernard Matthews makes turkey and chicken, but chicken tonight is not a Bernard Matthews product. And I was just like, it was just a really bizarre moment. And you're just like, thanks for that. Um, yeah, so that was a, that was probably the... I wish we had a recording of that. So that's funny, homophobia. I've been, weirdly, I've been accused by gay men of not really being bi after gigs. And just and just doing it for laughs. And I'm like, you know, what do you do? What do you mean to do? Fuck you to prove it? I don't know. <laughs> And uh, I've had some, you know, like any gay person or bi person, or you, you've suffered some level of abuse from people. Mm. Oh, sometimes it happens after gigs, but I don't think that's because of gigs. It's just mm. I've spoken about it, so they know about it. Mm. So after uh, this happened, as you say, you'd had a you'd had a rough week. Um, you, you mentioned bipolar there. I mean, how how is that affecting you and your and your and your stand up particularly? I guess in well, terms of if you're having a bad day, it's like because I've not written much about it yet. Oh. And this is because I was only diagnosed last year. Okay. Um, which was quite. A, it was it's, like anyone. Anyone who gets one of these diagnoses, I think, always says it's a good thing when you get a diagnosis because you, it frames and you understand a lot more of how you've been feeling, oh. and then you can look up coping strategies and you can get medication when you need it, and you, you know it all helps. Oh. I would like. I would like to talk more about it on stage, but it's not what the next show is about. So oh. maybe the show after that. So. Oh. But it, it generally, I find gigging helps. Because it's an outlet to talk about, but I think if you're in too negative a headspace, then it's hard. Mm. I was chatting to another act about this. Like, it was, 
we're discussing whether or not it's better to gig or not to gig when you're feeling depressed. Mm. And so I think it's I think it just depends who you are. During the gig, when I'm having a bad day during the gig, that's my freedom. That's the moment I'm yeah. not thinking about my bad day. Is that the same for you? Or in these situations, do the bad things come back into your head? I think generally, yes. Like, I think it's, it's very freeing to be able to go on there because you didn't think about what you're doing and just try and make people laugh. Because, you know, yeah. ultimately what we do is try and make people feel good. Yeah. Um, so, and that's that gives you a good feeling. Yeah. Um, but there are times, I think, when if real life is too on top of you, it's hard to do anything, you know? Yeah. Okay. Whether that's stand up, whether that's admin, you know, it's just it's hard. <laughs> yeah. And I think fr- that Friday was verging on that. Okay, that's interesting. So, so after the gig, you said your immediate uh, words to me was, "Sorry, I think I handled that badly," and I was just apologising on behalf of the shitty person in the crowd. And uh, but your immediate re- reaction was, "I think I've han- handled that badly." I personally, you know, didn't think you'd handle it probably as badly as you, you thought you handled it. You had a fine gig after that. Uh, but at those moments where it starts to get a little bit tricky for you, after that comes comes out from, from from no fault of your own, how are you feeling that in those moments you're headlining this gig? There's one or two minutes that are maybe a little bit difficult. Are you panicking in any way? Are you trying to call upon things in your mind or from your set that gets you out of these situations? I kept telling myself in my head, stop referencing that match. Because <laughs> about five times I called it back to something. And you st- yeah. I still, it's like, it's, it's like the whole thing where you say, don't think of a giraffe. And then all you're going to think <laughs> of is a giraffe. Yeah. So every time I did a joke, it occurred to me I could call it back to him. Yeah. And I, I think some of them weren't even getting laughs. It was just because I wanted him to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's the exact opposite. Because if I'm making him feel uncomfortable, I'm going to make other people uncomfortable in the room. Once you make people uncomfortable, unless that's your act that thrives off that, and that's not what I do. Yeah. Um, once you, once I've made the audience uncomfortable, I'm making the gig harder for myself. Yeah. And not, it was just, it, I should have handled it better. Like, ordinarily, yeah. I think if I was in a better mood, I would have just basically ignored it and just laughed it off. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause or the- just on the initial put down and then got on with life. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting that it was it was really your mood uh, that affected that. Because there was a moment where he, I was kind of, not on his side, but I was thinking maybe you're possibly overreacting, maybe he didn't mean it like that, maybe he was joking. But then there was a moment where he claims the heckler that he didn't say gay, <laughs> when obviously listening back, he obviously did. I didn't say it. He said yay. He said gay? Yeah, he said gay. Alright, did you say gay or yay? He said gay. It's the weirdest audience interaction question I've ever asked. Right, I am the I love that that was her best couple. Like, I appreciate she's trying to cover for her friend and you kind of respect that. But that was the best lie she came up with. He just said yay. Yeah. So that was a moment where I thought, oh no, actually you're just a prick. Yeah. In the crowd and yeah. There was, there was a gig I'd seen you there actually previously where they were a bit shouty, but it was all great. It was one of, the, one of my favourite gigs I've seen you do because you seem to be improvising for five or ten minutes of a 15, 20-minute spot, which was great, and I love to see an act do that. And you were taking people on, but it was all good-natured. And as you say, is it your mood that affects that and how, how those interactions are going? Because often you do get those negative comments, not quite so... Obviously negative in terms of homophobia, but in terms of either taking it down versus, as you say, your job being I'm, funny. I'm, I'm trying to give it... I'm just gonna, the start to this answer is going to sound very highbrow. Mm. And I'm, I'm going to show that it's not. So <laughs> you, you always hear this thing that 
great artists or musicians or whatever always uh, do better art when they're depressed. Uh. It's never something I've bought into. Because I mean, anyone who suffers with depression will tell you it's hard to channel it into anything useful or do anything better because you are depressed. It's, and so I've never bought into it. And I think that's true of gigging. You know, even if it's crowd work, even, if it's just, even, even having a conversation with someone is harder when you are having mental health issues. Uh. And that's why people shut down. That's why people withdraw a lot of the time. And so, and then to be in a situation as a stand-up where you then have to go and converse with people, and it becomes it it becomes a chore to do crowd work as opposed to the joy it usually is. Because usually I massively enjoy improvising, I massively enjoy performance. Mm. But in this circumstance, I just didn't want to have to deal with him. Mm. And and but as part of my job, I am required to. Yeah. And that's when stand-up became in those moves. Stand-up becomes work, and it's never. I never want stand-up to be work. That's why I've never really driven it as being something I want to do as a career. Mm. It's interesting you say that because I assume stand-up is your career. I know you do one or two other things. And if it takes off in, in a big way, I mean, you're, you know, you're obviously already a professional comedian, but if it takes off in a, in a bigger way, is it something that you'll always do something else because you don't want to do this full-time? I you was, don't want this to be the I only thing you do? I would say the turn of lo- the year just gone, so 2018. So when we came into 2019, I was saying to a lot of people, I'm going to quit stand-up at the end of 2019. And you know what? The moment I said I was going to quit, and it like, and I had this end date, and it's like, I just really started enjoying what I was doing again. <laughs> like, because I wasn't, because it was, it was going to be over. And now I've almost gone the other way, where I'm saying, okay, well, I'm going to carry on stand-up, but I'm going to quit uh-huh. other things. But I'm going to, and I'm going to move my focus away from the digital consulting work I do during the day. Uh-huh. So at the end of the next financial year, I will stop that, and then. Just go off and try and just try and find something else to do. Okay. And keep doing stand up. But so I once said I was going to quit, and now I feel like I'm going to carry on. Okay, great. Well, I hope you. I hope you do. Just going back to the gig, just briefly to to finish that off. So the gig ended. You got you know you got big laughs at the end. It, it ended uh, fine, great, good <laughs> as a as a headliner. Um, fine, great, good. Fine, That's great, good. Want. I was trying to find probably good. Probably, if I'm being honest, good, good. good. It wasn't great. It definitely wasn't great. Yeah. We'll take good. There you <laughs> see. I'm being polite. It was good, though. It was good. It was good. That's what you want, Frank. I'm being polite. <laughs> <laughs> we'll feed in the whole gig at the end of this so people can make their own judgment. Write in if you think it was great, good, or okay. So, but as I say, after the gig, you uh, you, you said to me, I'm sorry, I, I think I handled that badly. What did you do next in your evening? Uh, can you remember? Or what do you do generally after you've done a gig where you're not happy with it? Um, if, if I'm not happy with a gig, I will not hang around in the premises for any longer than I have to. Yes, I noticed that, I think. That night, generally, I, would, I was going to hang out because um, a couple of my friends were there. But I, was having, I said I was having a bad mental health week anyway, so it was, mm. it was advisable that I went home. Because mm. otherwise, I would have ended up upsetting myself or somebody else that night. Mm. And so, yeah, if I have a good gig, I generally stick around. If I have a bad, I think it's like, like we we all like to get told we've done a good job. No one mm. wants to. No one wants to sit around and get a pitied look from audience or deal with. <laughs> <laughs> no, one, no one wants to be told, "Oh, you're very brave." That end. was great, Mark. It wasn't great. <laughs> we've established that it was good tops. <laughs> good tops, and you don't you don't want to hear that, so you just leave. Okay, and you leave and you go home, and how are you feeling at home? I'm actually quite good at um, gig-wise. Once I'm out of the environment, I, I don't think about it. I don't dwell on bad gigs. Uh. There's the whole Millikan's Law thing where you're supposed to forget by, what is it, 11 the next day? 
Okay. Well, I for, I forget almost instantly. I've got, you know, there's 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 real things to worry about in the world. Whether or not I had a good gig is not one of them. If okay. I consistently have bad gigs for a week or something, I think then I'd get concerned. But <laughs> that doesn't generally happen. So it's never bad. It's a min- minimum of good with you. Minimum of good. <laughs> um, okay, great. So going back to your Edinburgh show this year, uh-huh. I said the. I was reading about the blurb and it being your debut show. I think there's some interesting points in your blurb uh, for your Edinburgh show. And often there isn't, because they're written very quickly. But here... Before often before you've written the show. Indeed. <laughs> but here, if you don't mind me reading a couple of sentences for... You mentioned the horse costume being dumped the day after you've purchased a two-person horse costume. Yeah. So join Mark Crown for his debut hour in a comedy show about everything that makes him feel unimportant. His sexuality... His overachieving brother, his ever-decreasing circle of childless friends, or even the fact that he can't find anyone willing to be the back end of a horse. I mean, there's so much that's fascinating in that sentence for me. The main thing being, everything that makes him feel unimportant, his sexuality is the first thing after the colon there. Is that... Why? What? what why do these things make you feel unimportant, particularly your sexuality. Contextually in the show, I mean, I had a very hard time adjusting to um, my sexuality hmm. uh, growing up because I always knew I liked men from, like, you know, when you know you start liking girls, I, I knew I started liking men. Hmm. Um, and because I had a lot of... When I was about 17, 18, I had a few gay friends and they all said the same thing, that, but they had, they had this belief that bisexuality wasn't a thing. So I just sort of just for the about three four years I was just saying I was gay I think when I first started stand up I was still saying I was gay hmm. and then I just realised oh no I, I do like girls and like, I almost had to sort of come out as liking women as well as <laughs> as well as liking men which is like a weird thing to do but coming to terms of being gay in the first place was fucking hard Hmm. Um, because I, like, I, I said, I grew, I grew up in a very masculine environment. All my friends are quite masculine. Um, one of my, like a guy who I still consider a close friend, um, once said, um, drunkenly at a barbecue, um, I am sick of having to pretend to like gay people because of political careers. Wow. And that was before I came out and I was like, shit. And he knows he said that sentence to me. Uh, mm. and now he and now he knows my sexuality so I hope, I always hope he's kind of awkward about it um mm. so but, uh, so it's not so it doesn't make me feel unimportant but I know it makes me feel, look like some people will think of me lesser because of what I am and I think that's true in both the gay and straight community I think there's a lot of gay people who have a problem with bisexuality a lot of straight people have a problem with being gay of any degree mm. um so yeah it, it makes you feel less than you you almost feel like sometimes you have to be apologetic for it to people because because like I was very concerned I was make I would make other people uncomfortable for a long time. I'm less worried about it now, especially like. You know, but what's quite nice now about it is I do. A girl came up to me after a gig um, in Angel, and just said, "Oh, it's like because I asked her if there's any bisexual people in the room, and she didn't put her hand up, and she came up to me afterwards. She was, I don't know why I didn't put my hand up because I'm bisexual. Uh, she goes, but I'm worried my friends don't understand that, so I'd play it down. I just completely understood what she was saying. And she yeah. goes, but she goes, but the fact that you talk about it so openly is really nice. That's great. And that's, that's the sort of thing you like to hear when you do comedy. Mm. That's great, man. So the next thing on this list that makes you feel unimportant is your overachieving brother. I mean, I love my brother. We are, in very ways, two very similar but two very different people. So we have a similar sense of humour. We talk about things in the same way. We both enjoy winding our sister up. You know, it's 
the same thing. But we've just taken very different paths. He he had a child at the age of nineteen, and basically he was working in um, Aldi or Lidl, one of the two. Mm. And he just had no way of like knew he wasn't going to be able to support a kid that way. So he joined the military and rose up through the ranks and ended up being very having a very successful military career. Mm. And I I like although I I'm anti war and I'm not into the whole ethos of it. I, I admire greatly what he did to support his child. Mm. Um, and in terms of sibling rivalry, it's you know when you turn up at a wedding um, or whatever family wedding, they they he they have a lot more questions for him about his life than they will for mine. So you do you do start to feel slightly insignificant in mm. uh, in response. And also, if you see his physique, he, the guy is very in, he's very in shape. <laughs> in a way that I will never be. Right. Which is rare for a stand-up comedian not being the most interesting person in the family in terms of job. So. I don't think stand-up comedians are usually the most interesting people. I just think we think we are. Oh, yeah, <laughs> not the most, definitely not the most interesting people. People thinking you're the most interesting What was quite person. nice once, once at a wedding, uh, they, um, they was, I was standing next to my brother and they were telling me I was very brave for doing stand-up. And I was like, he legitimately <laughs> gets shot at for a living. Oh, yeah, I get that all the time. I'm mm. standing next to a heart surgeon or whoever it is. It's like, no, but you're the brave one. Really? For doing... <laughs> 10 minutes. Of... <laughs> what we do is so insignificant. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and the last thing on this list, your ever-decreasing circle of childless friends. I put childless in there, but it's more childless and non-single. Yeah. I think it's there. I yeah. think anyone who's single in their 30s, I think, can relate to this. Less so in London, I find, but outside of London. Yeah. I grew up with a close group of about um, 10 friends. We're all still friends there, and it's unusual because we've all been friends since we were like mid-teens, even earlier than that. Some of us since we were nine years old. Mm. So basically since I moved to Milton Keynes. And uh, still friends of all of them, but they are now all either married, engaged, or have kids. Mm. I am the only one that's not. Put it this way, we did a, we do a group Christmas meal every year in December. December just gone, there was 20... Well, sorry, the one before. I was with a girl at the time. But the one before, there was 21 guests <laughs> at this Christmas meal. That was me and 10 couples. And you do start, and it was my birthday, and, <laughs> and you do start to feel a little bit like, oh, I'm a little bit behind these guys on on the curb, and it's you like you find it hard to organise plans because they've all got organised babysitting, or you can't go on. Uh, had to say, hey, does anyone does someone want to go to Prague this weekend or something? Because they're just not around to do it. So mm. I've had to carve out like a whole new circle of friends in London to do all that stuff. Mm. Uh, do you, you know, find do you find your circle of friends becoming stand ups and people relating to comedy, or do you try and? Uh, maintain a circle of friends outside of comedy. Yeah, I am friends with stand-ups that don't talk about stand-up. Okay. That's a very important thing. Like, um, Matt Smith, who I live with, we very rarely discuss stand-up. Like, obviously, we'll ask each other how our gigs went, because that's just common courtesy. Yeah. But, you know, like, we, we don't talk about comedy theory or what you'd write coming on or what you're doing in Edinburgh. It's, I think you find, you know, standard bog room green, uh, standard green room chat. Hmm. I, uh, you, you, just, you don't want those people to be your friends because then if one of you stops stand-up then what have you got to talk about hmm. um, so, but, so I have some stand-up friends but I, have, I make an active effort to find people who are interested in other things that I like to be friends with Yeah, and I'm getting better at that because I'm not a great person at reaching out okay and that's what I was saying again before the recording reaching out to people outside of comedy people with different personalities to comedians I think is personally important and it's something I got lost in for a couple of years being surrounded by people in comedy and comedians kind of normalizing some of the behavior and going outside of those circles since August I've been doing this I've become so much happier is that something you find yeah I, I 
this is, this is not, I'm trying not to be horrible to people that are stand-ups and my friends because some no, of my I best mean, friends are stand-up of course but it's just so nice to sit around with a bunch of people also, also because you get that little bit when they first meet you they're very impressed that you're a stand-up <laughs> and then they see a lot more of what that actually is and then they realise it's not that impressive um, mm. so it's just nice to sit around and talk to people that can talk about actual human things and don't have this tinge of mm. I'm not sure what I'm trying to say, but stand-ups are... There's always an inherent personality trait within them which makes them quite competitive. Oh. And you don't want to be competing with people all the time. You don't want to compete to be the funniest person in the room all yeah. the time when you're with your friends. And you just... That happens time and time again. And like, I remember someone said to me, who's not a stand-up. They're like, oh, when you stand-up sit together, is it, is it massively hilarious? I'm like, no, it's usually just fucking depressing. Oh. A, a, a comedian's car share is usually just discussing what comedians we don't like. Mm. And trying to find one that we all don't like, and then we can bitch about that person for the entire car, right? <laughs> We've all played the deaf car. I mean, let's not <laughs> pretend we haven't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, none of my other friends do that. I don't, get, I don't sit around with like my fucking artists or friends, and they sit around, <laughs> what artists would you kill in a car? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, I put it... I would word it in terms of the people I've been mixing with outside stand-up comedy care. They care. They seem to care about me. And it's something I got lost in, in terms of you think people care about you, even some of your closest friends and colleagues in comedy. Do they actually really care about how you are? Yeah. And I think that's it's the interesting one, because I think a lot of stuff... Especially, I think a lot of people who run gigs have friends because they run gigs. Yeah, because there's a lot of elements of people like well, you're friend, they're friends with someone, or they try to surround themselves with someone because they can do something for them. Yeah, and I feel like even if that's not true, you've often got that level of paranoia in comedy that people are only around you because you can do stuff to help them, mm. or they think you might go somewhere, so it's nice to be attached to you. Yeah. Um, whereas, like, if my friends who I've met in other means, they they've got nothing to gain from being my friend other than just hanging around with me. Yeah, which is a joy for them, but you know. They've got not going to get anything out of it, so you oh. don't have. You know, I don't have that level of unease around normal people. I don't like using the term normal people, but I have. <laughs> <laughs> so the way we've painted stand-up comedians here, and the way we've painted yourself, maybe ourselves. No, let's stick to you. Actually, let's not. Let's not psychoanalyze me. We've talked about hecklers. We've talked about drinking four pints regularly before a gig. We've talked about car shares, slagging off comedians. We've talked about comedians not caring and anyone apart from comedians being better company. <laughs> Here's the question. <laughs> the big question for you, Mark. Why the fuck are we doing this? I actually have no idea <laughs> why, I, why. I mean, I don't know why you do it. I don't know. Like, I, his, I enjoy gigging. I enjoy Me making too. people laugh. Me too. And that is at the crux of it. That's all this should be. It, and it shouldn't be competitive. And it shouldn't be this like toxic environment it has become in a lot of ways. All this should be is us having a good time and mm. laughing. And but When you first started doing comedy, how much fun was it? Even Absolutely. when you were shit at it, it was a lot. It was so much fun. Yeah. And you lose that because it becomes a job and it becomes a task. And it, mm. becomes, and it just becomes... And this is what I think... When I decided to quit... I actually got a lot of the just fucking joy of doing it back. And mm. what me and like a few other comedians were talking about this the other day, it's like, why don't we just really actively support each other? 
like in Edinburgh this year. Why like just emotionally like why we can get together and talk about our problems, we can fly each other's shows and recommend each other and like just pick each other up rather than just undercutting each other all the time. Mm. And there's just people just need to do more of this. Absolutely. What did they say to that? Yes, I mean it wasn't it's me great. that suggested it, but I was very on board. I was just like, because like, yeah, we've coined it leaning in. Like we're just leaning into fucking helping each other and happiness and mm. you know. Like we, it's all started. We were listening so much of shit songs on the radio on the way to a gig, and we're just like, we just left them on, and we're like, well, no, we're going to lean into it, and we're going to enjoy this for what it is, and that's just kind of the philosophy I think we need to mm. get back to. Yeah. Sorry, that got way too impassioned. No, no, that's great. <laughs> I mean, maybe a supplementary question on that. There's you say in terms of you don't see comedy as being your the only thing you're going to do, but for me. A lot of your personality and a lot of the things you've been through do make you a stand-up comedian. There are people that will say, as I think I am, I try other art forms, but I don't think I am any of these things. I try improvisation and music and all these kind of things. I think I'm a stand-up comedian, but I think you're even more of a stand-up comedian in terms of your personality, because I would regard comedians, and there has been lots of studies in terms of uh, comedians have personality traits more prevalent in people with as you've said, like bipolar, depression, that kind of thing. The bipolar, the depression, the drinking, the the you know, the inadequacy with the brother and that kind of thing. Don't well, forget the impotence. That's not fair. Okay, yeah. <laughs> That's important. Let's list it all. Yeah. All these things I would associate with being a true stand-up comedian. Is that how you feel? Like the, all these things have driven me to do this and... It's interesting you saying, oh, I try, you know, thought about giving up. Maybe you can't give up because this is who you are. This is what I think about comedians anyway, that this is who you are. You can't give up as much as you want to because, let's face it, it's terrible. Why are we doing it? You're doing it because you are a stand-up comedian. I think you're right in a sense. I mean, it's, to me, the stand-up comedian is this weird mix of inadequacy and overconfidence at the same time. Hmm. And I think that is... Anyone that follows me on Twitter knows how much I talk about myself as being the best fucking thing in the world. And Do you think that? No, not at all. That's the thing. It's, you have, outwardly, you have to be that, but inwardly, you hate yourself like mm. like everyone else. And I think that I, I mentioned the impotence. Um, this was I uh, had some issues in that area, so I got Viagra for mm. a while. And this is this is, I highlight this. This is the level of confidence I had. I was that emotionally stunted at the time that I could not get an erection. But at the same time, I was that confident in the fact that I was going to get laid that I was carrying Viagra around with me all the time. <laughs> I would take it to work. <laughs> that confident that if I went to the pub after I would get laid. And I'd need it. And that's that really fucking epitomises the person who is a stand-up comedian. It's that fucking, I'm this fucking broken and this inadequate, but at the same time, <laughs> I really back myself to fucking do this well. That's summed it up perfectly. It really does. You can leave that in. As well. I do think. <laughs> I do think you're broken. I do think. I do now think you're impotent sometimes. Not anymore. <laughs> uh, I do think you're good. Not always great. <laughs> but um, I think all of these things make you a fantastic stand-up comedian. I do hope you don't ever quit. And let's face it, I don't think you can. We'll die before we quit. That's, that's what's going to happen. So that is it. Thank you very much, Mark. That was uh, so interesting. Thank you very much. I enjoyed much. it. It was um, good. So that's our show for today. But join us again next week for more Psychomedy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify UK, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like it, please give us a five-star review. It helps other people to find us. And only psychopaths leave one-star reviews. 
Psychomedy was written and presented by me, Nathan Cassidy, BSc in Psychology, a first mark, I forgot to put that in earlier, <laughs> and produced and edited by Mike Hansen, BA English for Pod People Productions. Theme music by Mike as well. Follow us on social media at Pod People UK and at Psychomedy Pod at Nathan Cassidy and at Mark underscore Cram. There'll be more Psychomedy next week. Thank you again, Mark. That was great. Lots of love. And see you next time. Cheers.